Well, hey, it's good to be here this morning. I remember a time, let me take you back to a time where my mouth was watering. My knees were shaking. I was dripping in sweat. And this is the exact moment in time in which I was about to ask Lindsay's dad for permission to marry her. I had chosen unwisely by saying, sure, let's go to the local Mexican restaurant in town. And uh, yeah, John, that'd be a good idea for you to order everything with habanero salsa on it. And uh, that was a bad move. I'm just telling you right now, um, guys, pay attention. Do not do that. And so I'm sitting there. My head is just pouring in sweat. And uh, Lindsay's dad is a pretty intimidating guy. Now, he doesn't think he is, but he is an intimidating guy. And I was sitting there, and I had a single focus. I got to get Mr. Hudak to say yes. I've got to let him take his daughter away to this foreign land called Michigan. I've got to do all these things that are going to be required of her once we get married. And he ended up saying yes. But after the 13-hour drive and the habanero salsa lunch encounter, um, my focus still stayed the same. I deeply loved and loved Lindsay. And my single focus in that moment was to communicate that to Bill and to let him know that I wanted to be her husband and I want her to be my wife. And it worked out. Almost five years later, we're still going and uh, we have a single focus, one another. We love one another. Fast forward to just a couple weekends ago. I wasn't here the past two Sundays. Instead, I embarked upon a road trip from Byron Center, Michigan to Hunter River, PEI for my brother Joel's wedding, who happens to be here by happenstance. Uh, but t- on that drive, I was reminded again and again. Now, if you look at the Google map, this is how far it is. It doesn't even fit on a screenshot, okay? It's like once you hit to the right of the window, just keep going that way. And you keep going that way. It took us about 25 hours in total of driving, which is not the best way to spend a vacation. But I was reminded of this that my brother Joel had a single focus. There, there he is. A single focus. His love for his wife, Christy, drove him 25 hours and multiple trips in the years prior to go to Hunter River PI. And I was reminded of my own single focus love for my wife in that trip. Now, I say all that to say is you probably remember a time, whether you're married or not, in which you had a single focus love. Now, this may be a boyfriend or girlfriend when it didn't actually pan out. It could be your current spouse. It could be a job that you really, really like. It could be a project you love working on. It might be a sports team that you literally, your life is kind of centered around the sports team because you love them so much. But something happens in all of our lives that we don't necessarily intend to happen. It just kind of happens. And our hearts eventually garner some competition. The things that we have a single focus and love for start to get attacked by other loves, if you will. And whether you're married or not, you know that when you've got a relationship with someone, there's all sorts of things out in the world that want to try to rob you from that single focused love. Spiritually speaking, you may remember the first time that you said yes to Jesus. You surrendered your life to him. And in that moment, you only loved one thing, and it was God. Your whole pursuit of life started to reorient around that singular love, and it was God. Over time, spiritually, you've maybe faded from that, and there were competing loves, and most of us show up to a room like this, having lived years of our life with our hearts full of competing loves, of things that want our attention, things that want our desire, things that want our ultimate and highest love. 
And that gets translated a whole bunch of ways. Maybe for you or someone you know, maybe not you, but for someone you know, it might be the workaholic who stays hours after everyone else has left just because they love success and they love the drive and they love the work so much. Maybe for another of you, it's, it's your house, it's the landscaping or whatever it is, and you love it so much, you'll give so much time to it, maybe even in such a way that it competes with other more important loves. Manifest, manifests itself in all sorts of ways, from addiction to debt to cheating on tests to, to finding a different partner outside of your marriage. All of those things are really at the core a competition for your love for your highest love, to be at the top of what you love. If you dig deeper, though, the workaholism and affairs and debt, all these things are kind of symptomatic of a deeper problem, of the question that all of us have asked at one point or another, and every competing love wants to answer this for you. It's this question, is there something more to give my life to? I don't know about you, but I've laid in bed Awake some nights thinking about that exact question. Is my life contributing to something bigger than me? Is this current pursuit, is this current job, is this current relationship, is there more? There's got to be something more than what I'm experiencing. And yet my heart at times, maybe you would admit that your heart at times is just chock full of competing loves. Well, we're in week five of Shepherds and Kings. This story really of David who goes from being a lowly teenage shepherd boy cleaning up sheep feces and making sure they get fed to being the anointed king chosen over Israel and he goes from being kind of a zero to a hero in just a matter of years and he's now on the top of the world but you know as well as I do if you've read the scriptures David's story wasn't perfect and David again and again recognized and sometimes gave in to competing loves for his affection and his desire, the longing of his life. And yet at the same time, every time something like that happened, he managed to get out on top and to make God his highest love again, to make sure that everything was ordered by that love. And so David, a victorious warrior king, we talked about David and Goliath. We talked about David being anointed as the king, though he wasn't the most likely, he was the most willing and so David, who progresses through the story, we jump into this scene in 2 Samuel 6. And in 2 Samuel 6, David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which is essentially for us a symbol of God's holiness and his presence. And the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament was really an indicator that God was with the people that had the Ark. And so the Ark is traveling with the Jerusalem people. They're making their way back to the capital city of David. And they're bringing this Ark of the Covenant back in in victory and in triumph. He'd taken down Goliath, taken down Philistines. He'd, he'd withstood temptation, eventually circumvented Saul's authority. And now he's the leader of Israel. And so that's where we pick up this story 2 Samuel 6, and there's a lot that David can teach us as a guide for the story. So if you've got the Bible there, or you want to read it on the screen, or you've got it on a phone, I'd invite you to turn to 2 Samuel 6, and we're going to start in verse 12, and this is what it says. Now King David was told, the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. Remember, that's his presence, his goodness with the people. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. 
Now, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, now you probably don't use that word every day. Linen ephod is a glorified loincloth, okay? I just want you to have that in your brain as we continue reading. Uh, Don't picture anyone near you in it, but keep going. This is David we're talking about. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings all before the Lord. And after he'd finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Verse 19, then he gave a loaf of bread, a a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. All the people went to their homes. This is where the story gets interesting. Verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household, Michal, remember this is his wife, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked and full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I'll become even more Undignified than this, I don't know how a linen ephod gets worse, but I'll become even more undignified than this, and I'll be humiliated in my own eyes, but by these slave girls you spoke of, I'll be held in honor. And Macau, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. It's kind of an odd story. It's kind of a weird story. Maybe you've heard it before. Maybe you've been around the church enough to know this story, but in this story, there's a couple things happening. But I want to zero in on one word. And this word, if we understand, hear me, if we understand this word, it will literally change everything in your life. It will shift the way you view your relationships. It'll change maybe even your daily routine and some of your habits. It will start to change how you approach a morning like this. It'll start to change how you serve and how you give. This word David brings up in verse 21. If you've got it, you see it. He says, after... Over the Lord's people, Israel, and there's probably like a hyphen there in your Bible, but it says, I will celebrate before the Lord. If you've got your scriptures there, you like to highlight stuff, that's a perfect word to to highlight. I will celebrate before the Lord. That word is maybe better translated in our day and age as worship. And all of us have heard the word worship before, I'm going to assume. That even if you haven't heard of worship, you kind of know what it is. And it's singing, it's clapping, it's people in the front row like raising their hands. It's doing kind of weird worship motions that people do when they show up to a church like this. Uh, But worship for all of us, no matter how many times you've heard it, every single one of us, if we had to stand up at the mic and give a definition, would probably all give a different definition. For, for many of us, it depends on our background, it depends on our biblical knowledge, it depends on our own experience of what that word means. But David says, kind of explaining all of his weird behavior up until this point, that that's why he did it. I will worship before the Lord. I'll celebrate 
before the Lord. I don't know what your experience in worship was growing up, but I remember mine very clearly. It was rural Mississippi, it's where my mom is from, and so we're down in this small dinky town called Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia, Mississippi has like a couple stoplights and a Sonic, and that's basically all that Philadelphia is, and there's like three or four churches. You've got the really, really strict ones. You've got the kind of strict and not sure what they are. You've got the weirdos who don't even meet together on a Sunday. You've got all these other things, and then you've got the very, very exuberant church. Guess which one we went to on a Sunday, right? (laughs) So we showed up to the exuberant church. And my mom grew up in this. She was ready. I was not ready. And I've got two younger brothers and a younger sister. And we walked in there. And as soon as service started, it felt like spiritual chaos had just erupted. Like someone set off a spiritual volcano or something. Like there are people throwing towels. There are people playing instruments I've never heard of. There are people blowing ram's horns. Like there's all people speaking in different languages. There's a lot of things happening. And I remember after like an hour and a half of this worship service going on, at the end of it, everyone's quiet and we kind of get a release after my brothers and I kind of poke fun at how people are waving their handkerchiefs and all that and didn't really understand what was happening. We get to the end of that portion of the service and my grandfather's about to get up to speak and someone says right before he gets up, man, isn't it good? We are going to get to heaven. We're going to do that all day long. And I was like, crap, I, I do not want to do that all day long. Like, that sounds like the worst thing in the world. Like, I do, do not make me go there. Mom, you go and I'll wait behind. Like, I'm sure there's a role for me on earth. Like, I do not want to go do that for eternity. Like, much less that hour and a half. I don't want to go there forever. And so growing up, worship meant that. And I didn't want to worship. Like, I did not want to do that. I'm an introvert by heart, and so naturally, I would much rather sit and just kind of watch what's happening, observe, and maybe there's something that'll stir me intellectually, and that's kind of worship to me in those moments. Uh, But over the course of time, I started to learn more about worship. I started to to read stories like David's and, and what it meant for David to truly celebrate and to truly worship, and something changed. But I discovered this truth, and if you've follow Jesus, or if you're just a thinking type at all, you've picked this up already. That for David, worship wasn't about worship for worship's sake. It wasn't about worship even for creativity's sake, though David was a gifted songwriter, a gifted musician, wrote most of the Psalms in which we have these power-packed worship songs. No, for him, it was about expressing his love for God. It was about acknowledging God's holiness. Remember, they're sacrificing things every six steps. It's around a mile walk that we have in this scene. That's 333-ish bulls and fatted calves sacrificed. Now, if you're a vegan, that's kind of sad. But, but other than that, it's like the best backyard barbecue you've ever heard of, right? Like there's bulls flying everywhere. There's calf, there's steak, everything's happening. But it was all to honor It was all to worship and to celebrate what the Lord had done, that he'd given them victory, to worship God. And here's the truth, that all of us, no matter where we fall on the spiritual spectrum, every single one of us in our life, we worship what we love. We worship what we love. And worship is really this old English term that means worth 
ship. It's literally ascribing worth to someone or something. And in Christian worship, that's ascribing worth to God. It's saying that, God, you are the most important thing. You are my highest love. And no matter what it costs me, I'm going to express that love. For David, with his linen ephod and with all of these sacrifices behind him, uh, my response would be very similar to maybe yours and Macau's in the story. Like, dude, what are you doing? Like, can't you figure out a cleaner way to worship? Like, you have to wear this and you're killing bulls everywhere. Like, isn't there a better method? But David says something fascinating in response to Macau. What does he say? David said, I will become even more undignified than this. I'll go farther than I've gone right now. I'm going to worship harder than I ever have. I'm going, to, I'm going to show people how deeply I love God. And you don't get the sense from the text, and maybe you do, but I don't get the sense from the text that David made this about him. That though he had confidence, he was the literal leader of this nation, that he was carrying God's very presence in the ark, he didn't make it about him. Who's he point to every single time? The Lord. It's about God. It's about Yahweh. It's about the one that we truly worship. And David's response to Michal is, is probably not how I would have responded if my wife came at me like that. He's very gracious, but he kind of reminds her, hey, remember God chose me over your dad. Like kind of a just jab right there. It's like, she's like, oh, come on, like shots fired. And then from there on, she, there's something interesting though. Did you catch it in verse 23? Look with me, and if you've got the Bible there, you see. It says, Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, it doesn't say in the scriptures that God struck, struck her barren or that she was infertile or whatever else, but it points to the fact that this worship moment drove a fork in the road between them. Michal followed in the footsteps of her dad, Saul, full of arrogance and pride, lacked humility, didn't want to worship because it would cost her reputation. Yet David is humble He's submissive. He sets his privilege aside. He sets his actual royal garments physically aside in order to celebrate the Lord, to worship him, to be unabandoned in his presence. So there's two things that he teaches us about worship. There's two things that in our lives that he teaches us about it. And, and I don't know about you, as I look at this story I don't connect with it deeply because when I walked in, there were no calves or bulls. Thank the Lord there were no linen ephods, right? There was none of that kind of thing happening. It's not that warm yet. I'm just letting you know. But there was none of that happening. So what does this mean for me? Maybe you've asked that question. When it comes to the scriptures, how does this specific passage change my life at all? I think there's two specific things that David teaches us about Worship, And I mean worship like on a Sunday morning in this hour. I think there's two things he teaches us. The first, if you're taking notes, you need to catch this. The first is this, that worship is more about longing than singing. Worship is more about longing than singing. David in the Psalms, Psalm 63, one of my favorite Psalms, he writes that, God, my soul longs for you. Other translations say my soul yearns for you. It's kind of that deep gut level desire. My soul desires you, God. And that's what worship is. It's not about how you sing, because some of you aren't good singers, all right? Not all of us have this gift, okay? Not all of us are good singers. Some of us don't feel comfortable being physically expressive in a room like this, and that's okay. But worship is more about longing than it is what you're doing or even the words that you're saying. 
And despite your background, God wants to take you further. I don't know if you grew up, again, in a household like me, but in my household, Harry Potter was off limits, okay? It was straight from the devil, and just like Pokemon, anyone who did it was burning in hell. Like, that was kind of the, the capture I got from when my parents were like, don't go near Harry Potter. Like, you never know what's going to happen. Like, you could get swept up into the occult or something. Maybe that's possible, but no one I know has so far. So when I moved out, what's the first thing I went and bought? Like, we, Lindsay and I, a few years ago, rented Harry Potter, and I don't know how far we made it. We made a couple movies in. I lost interest, which is probably my own problem, but one of the first scenes in Harry Potter that I remember is a scene in which Harry, who's an orphan, doesn't have his parents with him, walks into this room, and there's this mirror of Erised. You remember this, right? If you've read the books or seen the movie, mirror of Erised, he, he walks up, and what's he see? You see it in the the depiction behind me. He sees his parents. He sees that the mirror of Aristed reveals the deepest longing or desire of Harry's heart. That's to be with his parents, to know and have that family unit reconnected. That's his deepest desire. J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter, who's also very clever, and you've probably already caught this, but Aristed is desire spelled backwards. It's a mirror of desire. And in the mirror of air said, worship is very similar. Worship is also a mirror. It reveals to our own selves as well as our Father what we really desire, what we long for. And that's why worship is more about longing than singing. What do you long for? When you step into a room like this, where's your heart naturally go? When you're alone or riding the lawnmower, where does your thought life go to? Does it go to God or does it go to your next task? When you're thinking in the morning about what you've got to do, does does God factor in to those decisions? Is he the highest love or is he just one of many competing loves? Because we worship what we love. And the second thing that David teaches us, more than longing and even more than singing, it's this, that, that corporate worship, what we do together, corporate worship is expression. David doesn't let us off the hook by saying, but you can worship however you want, right? He encourages the people around him. He actually rebukes Macau for not recognizing that worship, I hate to say it, but it is physical. There is a physical element. There's something about our bodies that engages our soul in a different way. That's why you see people on Sunday mornings with their hands raised or clapping or like I do, the gun. I don't know why I do that, but it's just like the gun happens every single Sunday. Just happening. Like I'm just feeling it. The guns are out. Like it's kind of my thing. I don't know. I don't even know where it came from, but... But it's physical, and that's something that even as a kid I, I thought was kind of foolish. Like I saw people do that. I was like, they don't really, they don't really love God. I'm like they're not really worshiping. They're, it's all about them, or they're really emotional people, right? I've said things like that. And over the, over the years, as I've grown in my faith and matured with Jesus, I've learned that I, I do need to engage my physical body. It just changes my soul. It, it shifts something in me. It helps me really engage and you may not be like that. You may not have the guns or the worship TV or whatever you want to do. Like, you don't have to do any of those things to be more spiritual. But worship is expression. There's no way around it. Worship will engage us physically because expression matters. You know, if you're married, there's a difference. And I'll play this out in my own life. There's a difference between me writing I love you on a post-it note in my chicken scratch and sticking it on the, on the mirror when my wife wakes up. There's a difference between that expression of love 
and, and walking up to her that morning saying, hey, pack your bags. I just booked a weekend in Traverse City. We're going to walk on the beach. We're going to get all this good food because I just want to communicate that I love you. Expression does matter. The content was exactly the same, but expression does matter. It changes something about the relationship. That's why God desperately desires, especially for some of you in this room, to allow you to open up that, to really express what's going on in your heart, what you really long for, to share that. And so, in closing, what, what do you do with it? Like, how do we move on? Like, if that is the desire of your heart, I'm going to just make the assumption that for some of you that is, that you want God to be the highest love, you want to be able to worship like never before. Well, here's what we're going to do. And this is just if you're in. We are going to choose to worship Jesus like never before. Now, similar to my experience in rural Philadelphia, Mississippi, when I heard something like that, I was like, oh, Lord, like, are you sure? Like, is there any other way? Is there like an Introverts Anonymous worship club that I can join? Like, we just sit around and read like theology textbooks or something more intimate? Like, but there really wasn't. And so here we are. We're still doing this every single Sunday. And so, that being said, I don't mean you have to worship Jesus like never before, as in like you just got to go crazy or change what you wear or, or develop your own motions or anything like that. I just mean that you personally, that I personally have to choose to worship like never before. Maybe that just means starting my day different. Maybe it means viewing my relationship different. Maybe it means just even how I prepare for a day like Sunday different. Whatever it means, you've got to decide to worship Jesus like never before. And in that, you immediately be forced to make a decision. And if you choose to worship Jesus like never before, you've also simultaneously got to decide right now what your highest love will be. Will it be your spouse? Will it be your kids? Will it be your pursuit of success or wealth or security? Or will it be God? Will you choose like David did to worship like never before because God is worthy of it? You have to decide now what your highest love will be. And here's what's at stake. If we don't worship like never before, if we don't decide right now to make God our highest love, our centralizing priority, then we are signed up for a life that will continue to live in the chaos of other competing loves. And whether it's worry or doubt or fear, stress, exhaustion, greed, ambition, unchecked lust, unchecked anger, all of those things we will continue to live in the chaos of. But, friends, if we choose to worship Jesus like never before, we are signing up for a life of joy, a life of deep worship, a life that's able to, to express our longing for God, even in environments like this. Or maybe that's weird or foreign to you. But worship is more about longing than singing. And though our hearts may be full right now of competing loves, we have the opportunity now to decide, Jesus, you're my highest love. And therefore, I'm going to choose to worship you like never before. And so... Uh, when you ask me what will it change, I, I think, one, it would change us. It would change our community right here. Things would start to shift. You would notice a difference every Sunday if we worship like never before. The second thing, it would change your own relationships. But most importantly, it would change your spiritual life. 
It would change how you are progressing in faith with God. And I'm guessing by just nature of you being here, that there's some inkling within you that wants to know a deeper life with God. I know that's my own personal desire. So what I'd like to do is invite you to close your eyes and I'd love to pray for us and then we're going to move into a time of of response. But maybe, um, I know this has been true for me, maybe this morning it's your desire to worship like never before, but man, whether it's emotions or reputation or time or commitment, there is significant obstacle to that in your own life. But you know at the core, your desire is to worship like never before, not just on a Sunday morning, but for your life to model worship like David's did. And if that's you and you want to decide now, maybe for the second or third time in this year, or maybe the second or third time in this week, to make God your highest love again so that you can worship like never before, I would invite you just in the quietness of this moment, just to slip your hand up real quick, and I want to be able to pray specifically for you. If that's you saying, I just, I want to make him my highest love again. Yeah, thank you. Anybody else? Yeah. So good, thank you. So Jesus, I just lift these friends up this morning. And my prayer is as yours would be for us. That God, you'd help us. you help these specific people that have identified that there are competing loves in their life. God, I, I, I go first and say that there are competing loves in my life. I, I at times pursue security above knowing you. And I say, no more. Help me to decide and to put my stake in the ground like these individuals have, that you'll be my highest love and therefore I will worship like never before. Jesus, we thank you and we trust you and we love you because you're worthy of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we close and sing this last song, we celebrate something a couple times a year called communion. Again, depending on your worship background or church background, this may have tons of different meaning for you. But here at the center, as part of this church, we simply celebrate communion as a way to identify with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And thanking God for this gift of grace that we participate in through the act of communion. If you have specific gluten-free needs, you can go over to this table. If you're good with anything, you go to either one. Uh, But for us, this is a chance to worship like never before, to take communion and to remember, maybe like never before, the great sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for you and his deep love for you and, and the ability for you, even in this moment, to repent, to turn away from your sin and to partake of this meal as a grace receiver. So I'm going to invite the band to lead us in this song. And I invite you, when you feel like you're ready, when you've reflected in your heart and know that, that you're ready for this meal to come up, take it, dip it in the cup. You can take it right away. You can bring it back to your seat. And then we'll close in just a minute. But let's seize the moment. Let's capture the opportunity to worship like never before.